If I could, uh, if I could welcome everyone, if I could welcome everyone to the uh, Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law's International Security Speaker Series. Uh, now, people who normally hear me do these introductions know that I love all of our speakers. All of our speakers are absolutely wonderful and absolutely great. Uh, and so I don't typically have much credibility if I was to say this one is particularly special. But I think those people who know me and know the influence that Mark Trachtenberg has had on me know that uh, I would not be here today without um, the person we're going to hear from today. I had the great good fortune of being a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania under Mark Trachtenberg. So uh, anything good that I've done is stuff he's done. Anything bad I've done, blame on next week's speaker, who's my undergraduate advisor, who's not here, so all the good stuff. Next week, of course, I'll reverse what I'll say, but uh, um, it, this, is, this is just something everyone should get a chance in their life to be able to have the opportunity to invite their mentor and someone who's really shaped the way they view the world, um, invite them into uh, your place to be able to share their thoughts. And any, anyone who knows Mark's scholarship knows that he is one of the most important, uh, not just international historians, but conceptual thinkers about international relations. A lot of the GPS students here I know are familiar with this book, because uh, either Professor Galt or I have made you read it. It is uh, The Craft of International History, and it's one of um, those books that absolutely essential reading for anyone who's doing research in international politics. Um, Mark has a recent book out, The Cold War and After, History, Theory, and the Logic of International Politics, which connects his interest in international history, international relations, and international relations theory, and policy and public policy. Um, but what he's here to talk to us today about is something called audience costs. Uh, Mark is, of course, a historian, but among political scientists, there is this very intense debate about how uh, the various types of political regimes uh, one is a part of affects their international behavior, their public statements, how they behave in crisis, what kind of commitments they make, and what happens with, with different types of regimes when they come into clash with each other. This is one of the hottest topics among international relations scholars, and it's one that's caused uh, fierce debate. Mark has been engaged in a project I don't think he expected to, where he's looking at this whole audience cost case and a number of historical examples. And what he's going to share with us today is his research on this question of audience costs and uh, the Vietnam War, both in terms of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and their policy uh, towards it. So, uh, it gives me incredible pleasure to welcome uh, Mark Trachtenberg coming to us from uh, the Political Science Department at UCLA. Mark? Uh, thanks. That was a, a very generous introduction. I, I, actually, I, I'm not sure what the acoustics are like in this room, so those of you in the back, or, yeah, it's, it's okay. You can, you can hear me okay? Uh, just feel it. So-so, right? I'm like one of these old cars that has to be cranked up. It takes me a while to kind of get going, but it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. I don't know how many of you are political scientists, historians, or policy people, but I guess one of the main points that I want to kind of touch 
touch on today is how these different fields can can uh, connect with each other. You know how they can uh, talk to each other in an intellectually uh, productive, intellectually meaningful uh, way. It's not an automatic thing. It takes work. It takes a certain amount of thought. Uh, this is something that I kind of uh, stumbled into. I'm going to be talking to you. Uh, I don't know. 30, 40 minutes or something like that. Um, a lot of it is going to be dealing with a historical issue, namely what uh, Kennedy's uh, Vietnam policy was. But my real goal is to uh, uh, grapple with a question of method, or actually to, to lay out a method that uh, Political scientists especially can use when they're uh, uh, dealing with a particular theoretical problem. And the example, the case in point, is going to be the audience cost theory in, in political science. It's something that I kind of suggesting a minute ago, I kind of stumbled into more or less by accident. Actually, I'll tell you the story. It's a, uh, I'm a refugee from. Uh, my own profession. Uh, the political scientists were nice enough to kind of take me in. I feel very much like uh, you know, the Greek scholars who went to Italy after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, or the, the Central Europeans who took refuge in uh, American universities during the Nazi period. And I felt like uh, I had to kind of give back to these people who kind of took me in. So, so now at the uh, UCLA Political Science Department, and uh, their flagship journal, the American Political Science Review, was uh, based at uh, UCLA for a number of years. And when they uh, got a submission that had a historical component, they would often ask me to be one of the readers. And, and the manuscript was uh, submitted to them on this whole issue of audience call to kind of test it uh, historically. My problem with the uh, manuscript was that I thought the uh, authors had, had basically reached the right conclusion about it, but I didn't like the way they did it. And uh, I thought kind of, uh, you know, this whole issue of case selection and what, it, what does a particular case tell you and so on. And I thought there was a much better way of doing it. And so uh, when I was writing the readers' report, I was trying to think out how I would do it if I had to do it myself. And then, uh, you know, make a long story short, they didn't take my advice, but I thought, like, well, it wouldn't be too hard for me to kind of uh, uh, do what I said they should do. And I sat down and wrote a paper on audience course, so I got, I got interested in the issue uh, that way, through the back door. Um, as I said, I'm interested in the issue of method. Here you have a political science theory, audience course theory. What is the audience course theory? It's basically the idea that, you know, war is puzzling. Uh, countries uh, should be able to reach deals so that they could kind of solve their differences and, and avoid the enormous costs of an armed conflict. Uh, why can't they do so? Well, a large part of the reason has to do with the fact that uh, countries find it hard to understand what each other really wants, how intensely each other feels about uh, an issue at hand. And why is it difficult to do that? Because of uh, uh, the suspicion that the other side is bluffing. The other side wants to pretend that it feels most strongly about a certain issue, 
uh, in order to get a bargaining advantage and, and uh, 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 make sure that the outcome was more in accordance with his interests. Right? So how do you go about separating the wheat from the chaff and seeing how, how uh, serious the country is? How do you, you know, uh, work your way around this problem resulting in what's called this, this incentive to misrepresent? The answer is, you can adopt policies that are, are convincing. You, your, your, your threats, the things that you say you're going to do, uh, will be taken as convincing and not as bluff uh, if you're going to pay a political price if you back down from those threats. You know, a country that's just bluffing uh, would think twice about bluffing if the uh, leaders had to pay a big price in terms of uh, their political standing at home, the bluff was cold in the air. So it's your ability to engage in costly signaling that way that uh, enabled the targets of your policy to, do, to, to distinguish you know, real threats from, uh, from pure bluff and help pave the way to a solution. And one mechanism in particular was considered central regard, according to these theories, and this is what was called the audience cost mechanism. If you make a threat, and if you're going to pay a big political price at home, if you back down from that threat, then that threat is going to be taken much more seriously than if you didn't have to pay any price at home. You know, because it would enable the target to, to see whether you're involved. This is, this is the argument. Important theory. It, it play, plays a very central role in what's considered a kind of cutting edge in, in uh, modern international relations thought, or body of thought uh, associated above all with the <coughs> um, How do you get at it? How do you, how do you go about seeing whether it's valid or not? Well, there are various approaches people make, but uh, it's hard to test the theory because audience costs aren't directly observable. As a matter of fact, if a threat is successful, if the audience cost theory is correct, a threat is made, it's, it's viewed as credible, because the audience cost mechanism comes into play, the other side backs down, no audience costs actually have to be paid. Right? So, the, so you have this problem of observability. You know, it's hard to do statistical analysis on non-observables, and people resort to various Proxies, and proxies have problems of their own, and so on. It's hard to get a handle. So what I'm, so, the, so my basic point here is that there's a method, a method that political scientists can use to get a handle on, on, on questions of this sort, right? Uh, uh, on these kind of theoretical issues. What is that method? You kind of scour the historical literature and you look for historical interpretations that have a certain resonance in the context of the theory that you happen to be interested in. In the present case, the audience course theory. And then you examine those historical interpretations in terms both of their internal logic and also in terms of the adequacy of the evidence, especially the evidence cited by uh, uh, the people making it turns out, in the case of the audience cost theory, 
that there aren't that many historical cases that fall into, in, into that category, that have a certain resonance in the context of the audience cost theory. Not that many cases where historians say, you know why uh, such and such country prevailed in a crisis? It was because its leaders went public, made these public threats. The other side understood that the threats were public, therefore they backed down. <clears throat> They backed down because they understood how much of a price the threat maker would pay if the threat maker failed to follow through on the threats. Not that many cases that have anything like an audience cost flavor at all, uh, where a, a historian would argue that having gone public, having made these very clear statements of policy, and political leaders' hands were tied. The bridges had been burned, had no choice but to follow through, lest an enormous political price be paid. Not that many cases. But there is one very important case in the historical literature that one could look at. These cases, incidentally, are, are of interest because the historians, they don't know anything about audience costs. They're oblivious to all this stuff. It's totally independent. So it's of particular interest in that reason. It's not like a political scientist who turns to history and, and will interpret the evidence so that it conforms with, uh, with the theory that the uh, political scientist is pushing. This is uh, the, the tech, this technical term for this in the literature. It's called cherry picking. <laughs> <laughs> right. Historians don't know anything about this. So, so it's independent. It's of interest in that reason. So you can analyze these historical debates. Note that I say historical de debates, historical literature, historiography, and so on, and not history, not the facts, not what actually happened. Because the point of the method is that a political scientist doesn't have time to be a historian, go into the sources and try, try and figure these things out. It's a much more efficient way of proceeding. <laughs> Much more efficient way of proceeding, and that's by examining his, the arguments that historians have made, by looking at the historiography. Uh, so how does this work? So I so say, uh, you, find, you find an argument about Kennedy in Vietnam that has a certain audience cost flavor. Where do you, where do you find this argument? Actually, the... Uh, most important text is written by a non-historian, the very famous uh, uh, left-wing intellectual Noam Chomsky. He wrote a book about uh, uh, Kennedy's Vietnam uh, uh, policy. And you know, I, I should tell you a little bit about why he wrote it. Um, in the early 1990s, Oliver Stone made a movie called JFK. And the uh, uh, premise of this movie was that Kennedy was about to uh, uh, pull out of Vietnam. Uh, Right-wing elements in the government couldn't accept that. And there was a big conspiracy to, uh, that led to the assassination of President Kennedy in order to keep him from doing so. And Stone's uh, movie... Uh, was based to a certain extent on a, a very interesting book uh, written by an active duty Army intelligence officer named John Newman called JFK in Vietnam. Newman had 
He didn't say, uh, he didn't connect it with the assassination, he said very uh, tangentially in the, in the last paragraph of the book. But uh, uh, Newman, Newman basically said Kennedy had decided to pull out of Vietnam. Uh, and the uh, Stone film had, you know, a certain appeal, especially on the left. You know, these dark forces within the government, they're the ones who are really controlling things. This whole notion of the United States is democracy is essentially a sham, and so on. And, Ch and Chomsky uh, uh, was, uh, was upset by the fact that the uh, uh, film, you know, struck a chord on the left, because for him, it's not a question of, of Kennedy as the great white knight who would have kind of saved everything. Personalities don't matter. The basic problems of the system are structural. So, so uh, uh, he set out to deflate the Kennedy myth, and he wrote, wrote this book called Rethinking Camelot that was a response to this. And one of Chomsky's main arguments in that book was, it's nonsense to say that Kennedy would have pulled out of Vietnam, because look at all these very tough public statements he was making at the time about how he wouldn't abandon South Vietnam, how he was determined to win in, in, in Vietnam and so on. Right? So, and Chomsky said, after having made those statements, he couldn't possibly have reneged on that commitment. It would have, he would have just been raked over the coals by the political right, even after the 1964 election, if he had, you know, violated He was locked in by the fact that he had made these tough public pronouncements. A clear uh, audience cost flavor to that argument. Right? So it turns out it's not just Chomsky who made that argument. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, other people, including some very distinguished historians like Robert Dalek, who embraced, explicitly embraced the Chomsky argument in a presidential address he gave to the uh, main professional group in this area. Society of Historians of, of American Foreign Relations. Right? And there are other, others who kind of uh, took this view it's, and indeed continue to take it. If true, this would provide a certain degree of support for the audience cost argument. It could show that, that an audience cost mechanism can come into play in a very important way. But is it true? It turns out that there are all these other historians who argue exactly <coughs> the opposite. Not, not just historians, but uh, various other scholars who have been interested in this, this uh, issue, including uh, one of your colleagues right here at, uh, at the LBJ School, uh, uh, Professor uh, James Gallagher. Um, the Newman book is the main case in point, or at least was the seminal work in this area. The Newman claim was not just that Kennedy had a relatively free hand to pursue whatever policy he wanted. Newman claimed that Kennedy had decided to withdraw from Vietnam regardless of consequence. He was committed to a policy of executing the United States from Vietnam, even if it meant the fall of South Vietnam to the communists. And this argument was taken up, as I, as I say, by number of other scholars, uh, Howard Jones in a book called Death of a Generation, an important book, uh, uh, Jamie Galbraith in an article he wrote, uh, uh, 
even uh, Dalek himself, subsequently, Dalek changed his mind on this issue, an important point. Uh, Gareth Porter, in a book, he, a very important book he, he wrote called Perils of Dominance. Uh, their argument was Kennedy was determined to withdraw. He would have withdrawn. He had decided to withdraw, regardless of consequence. He had to wait until after the 1964 election because he didn't want to you know, put his re-election prospects at risk. But, but after the election, he would have done whatever was necessary to pull out of the right. The opposite view. <clears throat> if those scholars are correct, then that would tend to undermine the audience causes argument. Right. You know, it's like, despite the fact <coughs> that Kennedy made all these strong public pronouncements, he would have withdrawn <coughs> Who's right? How do, you, how do you go about seeing who's right? Well, you analyze these specific arguments in the light of the evidence that the authors themselves present, and also in light of all sorts of other evidence that you have very easy access to nowadays through the internet. And I should say uh, uh, this whole issue is now very well done. They finally released a few months ago the last of the uh, Kennedy presidential tapes. All of these tapes are available online. You can listen to these conversations yourself. You can download them to a remote device and listen to them when you're working out in the gym or whatever. It's, I've done this stuff. <laughs> uh, and it is, it's quite remarkable, the enormous body of material that's, that's now so you can analyze these claims in the light of historical evidence, but especially the historical evidence that the authors themselves say. So you begin with Chomsky. Chomsky's view was uh, he has no evidence whatsoever to support the view that Kennedy had decided to withdraw from Vietnam. Well, he was aware of the fact that uh, one of Kennedy's cronies, uh, Kenneth O'Donnell, had written a memoir claiming that this was the case, claiming that Kennedy, in fact, told Senator uh, Mansfield, the uh, Democratic uh, Majority Leader in the Senate during this period, and someone who had a big interest in East Asian questions, uh, he told Senator Mansfield that he was going to withdraw. He says, well, you can't quite believe things that, uh, that people, Kennedy's Kennedy acolytes like O'Donnell were saying. You couldn't quite believe it because, well, after the Tet Offensive in 1968, people turned against the war, and, and these uh, the kind of uh, liberals who followed Kennedy, they had an interest in kind of going back and rewriting history to conform with their current politics. And, and maybe uh, it was true that uh, Kennedy told Mansfield what O'Donnell said he told Kennedy, but. Uh, Maybe he was just telling Mansfield what he, he thought the senator would want to hear, and so on and so on. You could write it off. Most historians would say, yeah, if, if that were all we had, it wouldn't be very much. And Chomsky's argument was that, well, that basically is kind of all we have. It's not true, though. There was a great mass of other evidence, some of which you could write off in the same way that you'd, uh, uh, Chomsky was able to write off this O'Donnell Mansfield. Kennedy said the same thing to uh, uh, Senator Wayne Morris, who was an opponent of the war. 
telling Morse what he wanted to hear, uh, 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 various other people who were close to President Kennedy, like, like uh, former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, you know, made these kind of arguments, Arthur Schlesinger, Ted Sorensen. Uh, <coughs> these people, not totally honest, you can't take what they say at face value. The problem is it doesn't stop there. There's this whole mass of other uh, recollections uh, uh, from people who didn't have that emotional commitment to Kennedy uh, that point in that same direction. Kennedy, Kennedy was not happy about the war. And so a lot of this stuff came from well before Tet. In fact, from, uh, from 1961, 1964, uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who's uh, uh, would, uh, uh, say he's uh, a mindless supporter of Daniel Ellsberg told, told about a conversation that he had had with Robert Kennedy well before Ted, uh, pointing in that direction. George Bundy gave an oral history interview in 1964, again suggesting the same sort of thing. We have in the Princeton, uh, 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 one of the Princeton libraries, the Mud Library of Princeton, the Croc Papers. There's a, uh, Croc had a record of a conversation he had with Kennedy in 1961. Clearly, very cool on involvement in uh, in that. John McCone, CIA director at the time, not an admirer of Kennedy's, also testified that Kennedy wanted to withdraw. You know, it kind of goes on and on. Uh, Hill, you know, Roger Hillsman, top uh, State Department official at that time, and Michael Forrestal, uh, responsible for uh, Southeast Asian affairs in the uh, NSC at that time. They say the same sort of thing. Roswell. Patrick, Deputy Secretary of Defense, the same thing. There's a mass of evidence. You can't just write it off with the, those Chomsky-like arguments. Not just isolated things, but lots of things. Gen General Gavin, who had been the ambassador to France, same, same sort of thing. Chomsky had also referred to uh, uh, the uh, declassified documents. He says, not a shred of evidence in the declassified documents to show that Kennedy was not committed to victory in Vietnam. Well, it turns out there's a lot more than a shred. There's a, a, the most important thing in the uh, declassified documents published in the Foreign Relations of the United States series. Uh, this document, I know for a fact, was available uh, uh, before uh, Chomsky wrote his, uh, uh, his book. Uh, Kennedy's talking in the NSC about, uh, about Vietnam. Very dubious about the uh, American commitment there, very reluctant uh, to send uh, uh, ground troops, you know, just uh, under all this pressure, resists this pressure, with arguments that clearly show that he's not committed to, to, to the war. Clearly the, the, the Chomsky argument just does not stand up on its own terms. So does that mean that the other side is, is, is correct? That Kennedy had made a firm decision to pull out regardless of consequence and was just waiting for the elections to run their course before he could implement it? Well, in fact, if he, you do not find adequate evidence supporting that view either. These people who claim that Kennedy decided to withdraw a point, above all, to uh, a plan uh, 
to withdraw forces from Vietnam by the end of 1965, and, uh, and to the fact that it was announced that a thousand American troops would be uh, withdrawn from uh, that country uh, uh, by the end of uh, 1963. And that the uh, uh, military authorities were instructed to plan on the basis of this assumption that America would be out by 65. But the fact that they were instructed to plan on the basis of that assumption doesn't mean that the Americans would have necessarily withdrawn if the plan was not successful. The goal was to turn over responsibility for their own defense to the South Vietnamese uh, army. But if it couldn't do the job, would Kennedy have uh, still withdrawn? And, and then people look also at the uh, uh, internal discussions from that period. You know, you don't find evidence uh, of Kennedy, even in secret, with his, with his uh, advisors saying, oh, we want to get out. Well, uh, people like Porter had an answer for this. This was political theater. And the uh, 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 Newman says, well, you know, uh, these people in the military, uh, they were trying to deceive Kennedy, and Kennedy responded by uh, uh, basically turning their deception against them. Right? They were talking about how great the war was going. Kennedy basically would say, well, since the war is going so great, we should withdraw it. Kennedy was deceiving people. Uh, at top levels of his own government about what his own real thinking was. Right? So you couldn't trust the documents. Well, there's a problem with this. Uh, uh, not everyone in the administration was, in, in, uh, uh, was the target of this deception. And according to Porter, Kennedy was open, certainly, with uh, Secretary of uh, Defense uh, McNamara. And we have a... Uh, uh, the t a tape of a one-on-one -on -one meeting between Kennedy and McNamara in early 1963, in which they talked about this stuff. Assume that Kennedy is open with him, and there's no talk about we're going to withdraw regardless of consequence or anything like that. Right? Uh, one of the uh, scholars who's uh, worked on on uh, the Kennedy tapes and was interested in these issues is uh, uh, Mark Silverstone. He says that this is basically a smoking gun in terms of what it tells you about the Porter argument. And there are other problems with the argument about a decision, a firm decision, to, to pull out. If that were the case, why was it that Kennedy was so upset about negative press reports about how the war was going? You think he would have been happy to have, have people worry about uh, whether the Americans would be able to pull it off? rather than to be stunned, having been told how well the war was going, and a presidential decision to withdraw and allow South Vietnam to collapse. Right? Uh, there, there are a lot of other, other things along these lines. Okay, I should kind of clip this a little bit. Uh, and in the paper, I kind of uh, talk about some of these things. The, the, uh, if you're serious about withdrawing or making a Withdraw, then you don't get so deeply involved in South Vietnamese politics. You don't get so deeply involved in the in the decision to, to support a coup 
that would overthrow the South Vietnamese leader, Jim. The whole rationale for that was that Jim was incapable of winning the war. But if, uh, uh, by supporting the coup, we're deeply involved. Right? That doesn't fit with the whole notion of Kennedy had decided to lot, A lot of things like this. And in the paper, I deal with this whole business of the coup in, in some degree. Let me just kind of uh, uh, give you the bottom line of the analysis of that body of literature. Again, case not true. If they had been right, that would have been damaging for the audience course theory, but they don't make their case. So what's the answer? What's the answer? You know, just confronting all these arguments on both sides and looking at the evidence and having, having the evidence be brought into focus by virtue of the fact that you get it to speak to very specific claims that particular people have made. Right? You reach certain conclusions of your own. What, what's the conclu conclusion? Oh, Kennedy's not committed to victory, but he wasn't prepared to simply wash his hands of, of Vietnam uh, before he had a chance to see whether, what the new government in South Vietnam would be able to do after the coup in Saigon in uh, late 1963. Okay. Probably it would have worked. Maybe a good chance it would have worked. But it was premature to, to just write off the entire American coup. How does this... Uh, I, I, should, I, I, should, I should... There's one aspect of the whole Kennedy policy that needs to be taken into account when you're striking the balance. And this is an aspect that, that's not brought up in the literature very much, and this is the nuclear dimension. Kennedy's view, which he expressed on a number of occasions, was we could hold our own on the Asian mainland, on China's per periphery, as long as China's a non-nuclear power. Because the great mass of Chinese land power can be balanced by the American nuclear but as soon as China gets the bomb, that game is over. All of those countries are bound to fall into the communist orbit with the implication of it doesn't make sense to commit ourselves too deeply to the defense of countries like South Vietnam. Right? So, so that helps you strike the balance and it pulls you to the direction of when we're not deeply committed, the commitment is far from absolute. Not, on the other hand, we have not reached a rock-solid decision to withdraw. We'll make a certain effort, but limited liability. Okay. So how does all this stuff uh, bear on the uh, audience course theory? Okay. The interesting thing here is not only does it show you that the audience, basic claims of the audience course theory have to be taken with a grain of salt because the president was not locked in by these very strong public statements that he made. It's a certain importance, but, but the real importance is it helps you understand why that was the case, why the audience cost mechanism is of relatively limited power. Why was it of limited power? Because, yes, Kennedy made the strong commitments, but he also said things that cut in the opposite direction about how the, uh, uh, this war was theirs to win, not ours to win, so on. 
he was speaking to multiple audiences, not just the people in the United States. Well, people in the United States on the left who were wary of involvement, people on the right who felt you had to do what was necessary to keep the communists at bay. He was speaking to people in South Vietnam, in the government, in the military, ordinary people, the people in the communist world, North Vietnam, China, Soviet Union, poor neutrals, and so on. The fact that you had multiple audiences here meant that your statements had to have a certain degree of ambiguity built into them. And the less firm they were, the more ambiguous they were, the less it could be presumed that the audience was Not only that, but these things have to be understood in political context, domestic political context. Even the right wing in the United States was unwilling to write a blank check to, to uh, support South Vietnam. There was a limit to how far it would go. Maybe the limit hadn't been reached at this point. Maybe it would take time for opinion to evolve. Okay? Let people have that time. You know, Kennedy's uh, didn't want to kind of uh, part company with his advisors too sharply. Wait until opinion evolved. Help opinion evolve in the, in the right direction. Um, if it eventuated that the United States would have to disengage from Vietnam in 1964, 1965, the new government wasn't doing uh, a good enough job of winning the war, and, and the whole commitment there had to be written off. What sort of price would have been paid? Not necessarily that, that great a price. People who point to statements that have been made, and the answer is kind of fairly obvious. They say, what were we supposed to do? What, 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 what would you have had us do? You know, make it clear from the outset that our, our commitment was only lukewarm, that we're only half committed to, to winning the war. Right? Obviously, you know, th those are powerful arguments. So the fact that strong public statements were made, those statements uh, 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 could be uh, interpreted in tactical terms. They were not necessarily to be so that when policy shifted, it would not necessarily come across as a breach of faith. And you could ease the way toward the right kind of interpretation by cultivating the right sort of relationship with the press. And Kennedy uh, spent a lot of time doing that, and uh, especially with very influential journalists like, uh, journalists like, uh, uh, like Arthur Crock of the New York Times, Jack Anderson. Okay, um, so you can see how, by doing this sort of historical exercise, where you're looking at the history, not just in its own terms, because it happens to be interesting, but you're looking at it in such a way as to get it to tell you something about theoretical issues that political scientists are, uh, are, are concerned if you do this sort of exercise, you can get insights into these very important theoretical issues that you can't get in any other way. Uh, one last point before I end. Uh, this whole issue of how political scientists could use historical analysis 
uh, is one that the political scientists themselves have dealt with from time to time. There is an interesting article by my old uh, colleague from the University of Pennsylvania, Ian Lustig, in the American Political Science Review, in which he talked about these things. And Lustig's whole point was that uh, uh, the historians just disagree with themselves about all these sorts of issues. And he thought, was hopeless. The political scientists, they, they couldn't uh, arbitrate. They couldn't decide which historical interpretations were correct or not. And so they could turn uh, uh, this, this problem into, into a virtue by treating all these different historical interpretations as independent data points. They could multiply the amount of data that they would have if they got away from the notion that there is one single correct view of history. Uh, it's a strange argument when you think about it, because basically what Lustig was saying was that it doesn't matter if a historical interpretation is good or bad, you know, they're all of equal validity that we could just uh, uh, pour into our hopper, you know, and, and, and uh, get the analytical mills turning and come out with our results. That's, that, to my mind, is a much too defeatist approach to how histor uh, historical work can be used by political scientists. I think that it is not that difficult to simply apply <coughs> these normal uh, uh, criteria to judging historical work, to see how good they are, to see whether they make sense, whether they're plausible in their own terms, entirely consistent, and also judge them in the light of the evidence that, that is presented on their behalf and of other evidence you found reading other works on the topic and perhaps doing targeted work of your own. It is not that difficult. It does not take that much time. And if you do this kind of very targeted historical work, you can reach conclusions of considerable uh, theoretical import. And the fact that so few political scientists do work of that sort means that it makes sense for people who are just uh, starting out to use that method because the payoff is going to be so extraordinary in comparison with, with the other well-tried methods that people have used in this area. So let me just uh, end there and we can uh, open it up for discussion. timing of backing down 
and for fear of some magnitude of cost. And so even that, that um, particular evidence, which was presented as uh, supportive of the other side, actually would confirm an audience cost type logic. So um, I'd ask you about that. And the other thing, you kind of described historians' work as being sort of uh, a body of independent evidence that political scientists could tap because it's uncontaminated by sort of IR theory. What happens if there are people like you or Frank who are actually trained and have some exposure to IR theory, then all of those arguments are percolating in the, in the sort of atmosphere of what historians are uh, you know, uh, exposed to. And so no longer do you have this sort of independent body of work that's being created. And, and, and the only way that this would work as a, as a, as a valid foray for the future is, is if we had to have less contact between the disciplines and not more. <laughs> I like that. Uh, 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 let me just answer that. The first point, not many cases. Not many cases refer to the historical literature, not history itself. Right? I'm claiming that we would want historical interpretations that make this kind of argument to be the focus of our analysis. Because that gives us a lot of leverage on the topic. Because presumably, if there's evidence to be found, these historians themselves would have presented in some way. It's just a technique. I'm not saying it's the only technique. And uh, uh, I think it's perfectly valid to kind of look at other cases if you're willing to do the historical work yourself to see whether this mechanism comes into play. And in fact, there, there are people doing that, and I think it's a terrific way to, to, uh, to proceed. Um, uh, uh, let's just do uh, uh, something else before I get to the third point. Do uh, political, uh, my employment political leaders never worry about domestic political consequences? Of course not. They worry about this stuff all the time. Policy is framed with an eye, with an eye both to the international political context and also to the domestic political context. Always, invariably. No one says other the audience cost theory, however, is not simply the claim that domestic political considerations play an important role in the shaping of policy and the tactics of implementation, which everyone agrees with. I, can't, I don't know anyone who, who, who would deny that. This theory is much narrower and much more specific than that in terms of, of what its claims are. My methodological point is that one wants to take those narrow, specific claims, what, uh, which are characteristic of this, of this particular theory, and, and analyze how the historical materials relate to those claims. And the reason for taking that narrow approach is that it enables us to bring things into focus that will speak very directly to the actual theories that are, are, uh, are, are being developed. Final point is this whole business of uh, the contamination of uh, historical analysis uh, uh, resulting from the fact that people like uh, Frank and I are interested in these political science ideas. Uh, I, I, I like that point, but honestly, this is not something you have to worry about. <laughs> I don't think Frank, we're interested in this stuff, uh, but we're not contaminated. <laughs> I'll, explain, I'll explain why this is the case. 
uh, we come to it with a kind of built-in immunity. <laughs> and this is the immunity of having uh, our, our, our brains already set in a certain mold, right? You, you develop a historical sensibility of studying history all these years. And you come to these political science arguments, and, and instead of saying, oh, wow, these guys are so smart. They must be right. Let me interpret history in this, this light. You come, you come to these arguments and say, that's totally nuts. That's crazy. You know? and, see, but the, on the other hand, they are very smart. So, so why exactly are they wrong? You know, that's that's the framework that you use. So, uh, so at least for the time being, the contamination problem isn't something big you have to worry about. Yes, Bob Inman. Yes, I uh, definitely. We, we met. Uh, I we definitely not a political scientist. Uh, bit of a historian. My problem is I lived through this time frame. I think you have to look back at what prompted Kennedy to increase the commitment in South Vietnam. And it goes to the Vienna Conference, coming back, the NSC meetings, it ran through about three of them. Uh, who lost Laos? Worried about the political influence of who lost China being replicated. Who would have cared about Laos or even knew about it? But great discussions about it. Bobby Kennedy comes back saying, I've talked to Cardinal Cushing. The Jim brothers are very good, reliable Catholics. We can bet on them, so we should go increase what we're doing in South Vietnam in order to offset any accusations about giving up Laos. Then you look at how it played out. They weren't so reliable. Maxwell Taylor's out there, Henry Cavett Lodge, you, there's a lot of history. I'd love to know if there's any access to what Maxwell Taylor reported back directly to the White House on these issues. Is there any historical record that you found? Okay. Uh, let, me, uh, let me answer uh, uh, just uh, two of those points. The, the first, which is that Vietnam policy has to be understood in a very broad political context, in the context of really much more important issues which is the issue of general thermonuclear war, U.S.-Soviet relations, the German question, the future of Europe, and all those kinds of things. I, I can't tell you how important this point is. Why is it important? It's because you look at the literature on Vietnam, it's all ignored. It's as though the Vietnam issue is being dealt with in isolation. Right? There are historians who specialize in Vietnam, they have the blinders on. They're not aware of the fact that, that uh, the president is, has to deal with all kinds of issues all at the same time, and especially with these really big issues, uh, the whole question of U.S.-Soviet relations uh, uh, during the uh, Khrushchev period. You cannot afford to demonstrate weakness when you're playing for very, very big stakes, right? Uh, uh, and, and that certainly is a factor which presumably would have been uh, taken into account as these decisions about the American commitment in Vietnam, uh, 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 what scale, how long, and so on, are being made. That's a terrific point. And, and, uh, and again, this is why I think it's so important that you get people with you know, the, the, the sensibility that, that people, you know, people like Frank and I have developed who, who just uh, automatically view things in those terms. It's like, it's like second nature. It had to be understood in that context. 
the, uh, the other thing you asked was about uh, uh, Maxwell Taylor and the reports uh, that he was giving. The whole intelligence side of this story, absolutely fascinating. Mm. This is one of the reasons why that uh, Newman book is of such interest. Because, as I said, he's an active duty Army intelligence officer when he did the work uh, that culminated in that book. And he knew where the bodies were buried. And he knew how politicized the intelligence process was. And I mean, it's scandalous. It's shocking when you look at, uh, at what was going on there. There's a, a, a lot of literature on this stuff. CIA has released all kinds of interesting in-house history. Uh, I have a, a, a FOIA request pending with the CIA put in about a year ago. This is the reason I'm, I haven't sent this paper off for, to a publisher yet. I waited to get the response. They said I should get it in about May. Of all these documents where, they, where uh, finally by 63, the CIA was like reporting the truth about uh, how the war was going. But up to that point, it's like, uh, especially people like uh, Taylor, uh, when if uh, they would, they, there's a, a book by a guy named Kai Bird called The Color of Truth about the Bundy brothers. And he tells the story, uh, William Bundy accompanied Taylor on a mission to Vietnam. They went out to yep. the Canto province and, and some really gutsy uh, army staff officer had, had the audacity to tell, tell the truth about how poorly the war was going. And, uh, uh, and then it just Taylor goes back to Washington and he, he can listen to the tape of him briefing the president about this. The war is going great, all this stuff is wonderful. I mean, it's, it's uh, 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 the, uh, the intelligence side of the story is extremely important and, and understudied and, and uh, this new material that's come out that shows, I think, that Kennedy understood how poorly the war was going. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's going to have a dramatic effect on our understanding of the U.S. The, the reason for my question on Taylor yeah. is what I recall is he cut the Pentagon out of his reporting, which went directly to the White House. Pentagon was credibly, you know, what's he saying? And they couldn't find out from the White House or from him. So during my era of looking at it, that period of whatever Taylor was saying to us is total black. Yeah. yeah. Does, um, would you agree that once you take a cynical view of the audience cost theory, that it being quite media driven? Because uh, Kennedy made very strong statements about Cuba and ended up abandoning Cuba. The Democrat Party helped start the Vietnam War. Ten years ago, they voted to end the Vietnam War without too much of a political cost. But just to go a little farther afield, I think the two best examples of your theory would be the Cuban Missile Crisis, but a little bit more vividly would be 9-11, because I think that was the first time in my lifetime, at least for a brief window, when the entire world truly feared the United States, because we were so united, because we were so all-in. And of course, that unraveled a little bit later on. But what are your theories about that? Is it very media-driven and driven by historians later on? Uh, uh what do you mean? The theory is media-driven? Well, yeah. Um, just like I think, um, would Kennedy get a pass if he did abandon uh, Vietnam? Say, if he was reelected? Uh, would he have gotten a pass? Despite a strong statement. When a president is making a uh, calculation, you want to look not just at the price you're going to pay. And there, are, you know, if Vietnam would have been abandoned. There certainly would have been people who would have criticized that. But you have to look at both sides of the ledger, right? If you don't abandon Vietnam and you go the route that Johnson went, you also pay a big political price, don't you? So a president would want to kind of weigh these things against each other. 
The problem with the audience cost theory is it looks at, and this is true of a lot of uh, political science theories, I should say, not just this one. It looks at only one side of the ledger. It's blind to the fact that a, a more complex calculation has, has to be made. Right? So, and then in uh, uh, making that decision about what sort of course you're going to run, you will naturally think of the tactical aspects of it, the management of the press. The management of the press, you know, was a, a very big issue in those days. There were congressional hearings and so on, because there was a, 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 an assistant secretary of defense for public affairs, <coughs> Sylvester, who bragged following the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis about how the, the president had been able to manage the press as part of a part of our policy. People got really uh, upset about this. But the fact is that a skilled president has to want to manage the press. It would be foolish to not want to manage the press. And Kennedy certainly understood these things. And he certainly understood that the particular uh, cost that he would have to pay for pursuing one policy as opposed to another uh, would depend to, to in large measure on uh, his relations with the press. Because the press is not this a political institution that's only concerned with getting the truth any more than historians are. So, I mean, Frank, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the press is highly politicized. They have their own political agenda. They, 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 uh, uh, they would, uh, can always you know, trim the news to, to fit one political agenda uh, as opposed to another. And the, the relations that the president would have with top journalists, top publishers, and so on, are, are extremely important. You see that in you know, the famous episode during the uh, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, there's another, another factor that, that uh, has to be taken into account, and this is what people call the follower effect. It's like, you ask people these questions in public opinion polls. You know, how would you feel if Vietnam were abandoned? So, oh, this would be terrible. Then the same, the same people who are asked in the same, in a, either the same poll or, or a poll a few weeks later, uh, what if the, pre the president said we have to do that same thing? Say, oh yeah, 74% will support the president. So that gives the president an enormous amount of, of leeway in terms of managing this whole process and determining the nature of the course that will be incurred. Oh, yeah. James Calvary. Oh. Uh, I agree with you on a number of important things. I agree with you on a method, uh, which is your method that you described is exactly the same one that I adopted when I first became aware of Newman's work in 1993. And I agree with you about Chomsky. <coughs> I think is has pursued a fixed idea on this from the beginning. I disagree with you on two points. One of them is the characterization of my position, and the other is the characterization of the evidence. You describe my position as being one of that Kennedy would have decided to withdraw from Vietnam after the election of 1964. Uh, and that is not my position. My position is that there was a decision taken on the 2nd of October 1963 such that the plans for Vietnam as at that point were a full withdrawal by the end of the evidence for that, there's a lot of it, but I just want to read a little bit if you don't mind. This is a memorandum, and Bob mentioned Maxwell Taylor. This is a memorandum from Maxwell Taylor to the Joint Chiefs of Staff dated October 4th, 1963, which reads, 
On 2nd October, the President approved recommendations relating to military matters contained in the trip report of the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'll skip to the uh, crucial paragraph here. All planning will be directed towards preparing RVN forces for the withdrawal of all U.S. Special Assistance Units and personnel by the end of calendar year 1965. The U.S. Comprehensive Plan, Vietnam, will be revised to bring it into consonance with these objectives and to reduce planned residual post-1965 MAAG strengths to approximately pre-insurgency levels, which was 1,500 soldiers. That was the plan approved, as Maxwell Taylor says to the St. Pat and to the JCS, on the 2nd of October, 1963. That's my position. I just want to be clear about that because the evidence is there, derived in exactly the way you described, by looking for documents that might bear on this one way or another. <coughs> Uh, documents that are that corroborated. There are no documents that contradict it. Uh, and I have the agreement, by the way, of a, I think a non-biased source, which is Francis Bator, yes. uh, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor for the Johnson administration. We had an exchange on this in the New York Review of Books <coughs> four years ago, uh, maybe a little less than that, which he concluded by saying, Professor Galbraith is correct. He said that there was a plan to withdraw U.S. forces from Vietnam, beginning with the first thousand by December 1963, and almost all of the rest by the end of 1965. President Kennedy had approved that plan. It was the actual policy of the United States on the day Kennedy died. So that's Francis' position. It's my position. The difference that I mean, the thing that we allow is that Kennedy could, of course, have changed. That's unknowable. What's knowable is what he did decide. Right. Um, basically, I agree with that. But there's an important difference between the correct claim that Kennedy ordered planning to proceed on the assumption that the United States would withdraw by the end of the and the view that a firm decision had been made to withdraw from Vietnam by that point. The reason I interpreted uh, Professor Galbraith's work the way I did was the uh, subtitle of his uh, uh, main article on this uh, uh, subject. Uh, this was, uh, unless you've written uh, uh, anything else uh, since this point, I, I don't know, but this is the Boston Review article. The sub the, uh, this article is Exit Strategy, colon, in 1963, JFK ordered a complete withdrawal from Vietnam. That's correct, he did. Well, I don't think he ordered a withdrawal. He I ordered just read you the order. <laughs> it was that planning would proceed on that basis. It wasn't that we are going to withdraw regardless of consequence. Nothing you read shows that he decided to withdraw from Vietnam, even if it meant a communist takeover of that country. And there's evidence from the Kennedy tapes that shows that if the plan doesn't work, and if the South Vietnamese aren't able to cope, we may have to reconsider. So, uh, but, but I mean, we can get into these issues of dealing with the withdrawal plan and whether it was uh, instrumental yeah, logic, With all respect, by yeah. the logic you just argued, there is no such thing as a presidential decision. I grant you, you're planning out 18 months, things can happen. 
Kennedy himself on the tape says, well, we need a new date. At some point, we get a new date. There'd be many, super, many fewer troops there at the time. But this was a plan. The decision was taken. The reason this is interesting is that this fact that the decision was taken was a fact that was deeply hidden for many years. That is why Newman's book in 1993, which begins to bring it out, and which got a front page review, as I'm sure you know, in the New York Times book review by Arthur Schlesinger, was an important event because it raised an argument which had previously been very carefully obscured in the literature. All right, well, these are things that we could pursue on the basis of textual analysis. Yes. Um, about this stuff in the paper, you know, uh, I, I give the uh, reference to the uh, interview. Ellsberg also talks about it in his uh, memoirs and so on. Uh, but once again, these are comments made after the fact, after, uh, after the war had gone sour, uh, uh, many people in 68. Uh, so they're not as compelling Mark, I, I wanted to just return back to the methodology point, and I actually think it, it came out in your interchange with, uh, with Jamie, which I really enjoyed. I really value, and I, I've used also in my courses, as Frank and Hugh and others have, uh, your, your book on method. I think it's valuable to get people to think about historical literature when they're trying to understand a problem. But I'm still not sure what we're telling them to do. It's not, it's not always as clear, because what I, what I understand you're saying is find the main works on the subject written by historians, work through them, 
test the logic of the argument and test the evidence as best you can. But then in your, in your method book, you say, I think very honestly, you didn't say this here, you also have to have a sense of how things work, right? You have to have a sense of what, what is a decision, is what I hear you guys arguing over here. What is the difference between a plan and a decision, right? What, what, how do things work? And, and, and that's, I think, where a lot of the difference between historians and political scientists comes in, right? Because we develop a sense of how things work based on an immersion in what we've seen through process tracing of one kind or another. And political scientists are very legitimately, I think, come to a way of how things work that's much more deductive, right? Much more based upon a view from not process tracing, but either a large amount of data or a few set of discrete cases. So can you elaborate on that a little more for us? Well, <laughs> it's clearly uh, true. When you're uh, trying to make up your mind about these issues, you have to bring to bear all kinds of things that go outside the uh, narrow body of literature that it is bringing to bear your general sense for how things work. That being said, does that mean that? throw up our hands and say, well, everyone has a different sense for how things work, and how on earth can you argue those things out for so broad. There are also these very narrow issues. You can, you can get closer to uh, the bottom of things if you uh, focus in on specific claims, specific claims that were made about uh, uh, Oh, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, the withdrawal plan that was announced at the end of 1963. To what extent was this a reflection of a serious policy decision as opposed to something that was adopted for instrumental purposes? Namely, to scare the South Vietnamese, to scare them into maybe accommodating us, to scare the generals into doing something about GM, to, to uh, uh, cover uh, Kennedy's political flank on his left by making it clear that uh, you know, maybe we weren't uh, 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 going to uh, you know, end this uh, crime war. So, what's the evidence for that? I'm sorry, for what? For, for, the, the, for the claim, the, for the instrumental claim, it's in the paper. I can't, I can't uh, uh, get into it in terms of answering this question. Let me just, let me just finish, and I, I promise I'll get to you. Um, you can get at that issue by looking at the documents that relate directly to it. Are people saying that a plan of this sort can serve uh, an instrumental purpose? Well, certainly scholars have claimed that's the case. That was the case in the Pentagon Papers and so on. You can, you can <coughs> reach an assessment on the basis of what the evidence shows if you focus in on those narrow questions. Now, admittedly, when you reach conclusions on those points, they're not going to settle everything once and for all, because you always have the uh, sorts of general problems that Jeremy alluded to. But you can get closer to an answer if you use that method. That's all I'm going to say. And a lot closer than, than many people do. <coughs> Now, finally, <laughs> yeah, 
Is there uh, any movement when you start tracking some of the current rains using this theory so that the end of the universe is a technical theory of capital R? I go in and analyze everything that's been written or said about Iran, and they give me some clue about what the final action will be, and then I let time go by, maybe your successor says, oh, by the way, it didn't work or it didn't work. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, you can use this sort of method when you're dealing with debates relating to current issues. You can, like uh, or Frank does with nuclear proliferation, with uh, you know, Iraq policy, Iran policy, and so on. You can go back and look at what people say and, and assess arguments in light of, of the evidence. You certainly can, can do that. And I mean, if you look, um, for example, at the, the, uh, the, my new book that uh, Frank alluded to, I actually have a, uh, a couple of uh, articles there toward the end that apply this technique to dealing with uh, uh, contemporary issues. And you'll see how it works. It's, it, but, but, but it's, you're quite right, conceptually, it's basically the same. Sorry. Great. Well, then, um, let me say uh, we will, if you haven't, we should post the paper um, on our website or give you copies. If anybody wants a copy in detail, uh, we'll distribute it. We'll also, we'll also put it on our, our website too, so that you can follow up. Um, anyway, that was absolutely terrific, riveting. Hopefully, we continue this debate. Please join me in thanking uh, Mark.